0: Welcome from EURACTIVE! My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your digital and media editor. This week we take a closer look at the Digital Services Act, which is very close to a final agreement. For an overview on all things digital in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website EURACTIVE.com. This is EURACTIVE's Digital Brief Podcast. This episode is powered by Google. EuroConsumers and Google have partnered to form the Consumer Empowerment Project, CEP, to help improve the digital ecosystem for consumers. Our mission is to empower consumers through dialogue and help them understand their rights so that they can make better informed decisions. Join the launch event on the 28th of April on www.cep-project.org. Today, I'm joined by Tanya O'Carroll, independent expert coordinating the People vs. Big Tech, a network of more than 100 organizations. Hello, Tanya.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So, we are in the hand game of the Digital Services Act. Can you tell us what we can expect from this flagship proposal, especially in terms of uh, moderation of online content?
1: Yeah, so I think to answer that question it's useful to um to take a step back and put the ambition of the DSA in context. So what what did they really intend to do with this law? Um and what was it what were some of the challenges it had to grapple with? So on the one hand I think we're all seeing the huge and sweeping sweeping harms that are playing out every day as a result of platforms having been left really for the better part of what 15 20 years to set the rules on content moderation themselves and you've got the escalating hate speech and abuse particularly targeting women and marginalized communities you've got the kind of algorithmic um, amplification of disinformation which is increasingly something that's you know happening on an industrial scale and it's sort of baked into the business model of the tech companies so it's you know the tech companies provide the business model for that disinformation And then you've got the fact that there's also virtually no transparency around how the platforms navigate those harms, what they do, um, what kind of content moderation decisions or resources or expertise or training (laughs) are in place um, for different language communities around the world, and no recourse. So when they get things wrong, there's no way for citizens or users to to actually uh, challenge it. So... The breadth of the harms that the DSA is trying to tackle is is you know staggering, um, and on the other side, we know that regulating content moderation is incredibly politically contested um, and very difficult to get um, very difficult to get right you know or let's say the risks of doing it badly are huge um, there's the risk that you obviously can incentivize overbroad corporate censorship, and that's things like you know if, if there's any liability on the platforms that encourage them to be Overly, um, you know, overly um, censoring content that, that is illegal or removing things, strict removal uh, deadlines, general monitoring obligations, all of these things. And on the other and on the other side, there's the very difficult question around the problem of harmful content that is legal. And um, here I'm talking about the kind of content that might be fine if it's a random guy on the street, you know, shouting nonsense, but is there something altogether different? when it's given a stage amplified to millions of people um, promoted by algorithms that are targeting the message at people who will be susceptible to that message and that's what we've got right now right where it becomes destabilizing to democracy Um, so designing a regulatory approach that deals with the harms of things like disinformation and online abuse while safeguarding fundamental rights was what the dsa set out to do and I think what they've been able to achieve is really remarkable. When you when you pull back, you know, we'll talk about some of the things that I don't think it's going to get right um, and where it falls short. But I think we have to acknowledge that this is really a very, very clever regulatory innovation. Um, and it will change the game in terms of unaccountable platform power. You know, I think it's it's shifted the focus away from the symptoms of the problem. That's the content itself and who's responsible for it, which is what I think leads us into that that kind of very ineffective whack-a-mole approach to dealing with illegal content, but also harmful and legal content. And it shifts it away instead to the the root causes of the harm. And that's the mechanics of how the content is spread online that's baked into the platform's business model. Um, And so I think focusing on due diligence obligations has been a very smart approach, the risk assessment um, framework, the data access framework. We're really talking about a new era of of accountability for the way that platforms govern content moderation and and um, and I think uh, yeah we can expect the DSA to really change the game.
0: You just mentioned risk assessment and indeed uh, all these uh, societal issues you were mentioning like disinformation. Harmful content; they should be addressed by these uh, risk assessments from um, platforms that have a societal impact. How do you expect uh, these risk assessments to be carried out, and and with what results?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, and I think um, to some degree, because it's an innovation, it's it's hard to predict to some extent, right? So, first of all, what is risk assessment? Um, it's essentially creating this novel obligation on the big platforms to anticipate the potential harms that stem from their their platforms, and then take action to mitigate against those um, harms. Now, it's the way that it's designed is is that it gives a lot of leeway, and the responsibility really stays with the platforms, and that's very important. So the platforms are the ones that get to decide what mitigation measures um, they are going to put in place. That could be changing the terms of service that could be changing the 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 way that um, they are ranking it, the algorithms are sort of um, what what the algorithms are prioritizing in in terms of uh, displaying content there's a whole range of things that that are that they can do within article twenty seven and then the mitigation measures and what regulators have are a toolbox that includes things like annual audits which means that they can actually say okay how have you made the decisions and uh, are they actually working in practice how effective are they and so I think that hope is that it's going to create a pressure on platforms for the first time to to have to prioritize things that are not just engagement I mean what we see right now and I think Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower has been the you know the best um, ambassador of this message and I think you know the, the documents that she revealed from inside Facebook show this really clearly. Is that very often the platforms are aware of the serious consequences of of and, and harms that are stemming from their content, uh, or from the design of their algorithms and the design of of, of their um, their platforms. Things like on the mental health of teenage girls, as we saw from uh, Frances Haugen, or the platform being used by white supremacists to organize. Outside of the US, I think those harms are even you know they're tenfold because you, the platforms are also very you know under investing hugely in um in the actual content moderation processes and systems that they have in place in some countries they have virtually no machine learning or human moderation at all so it's essentially a wild west um so i think the at the, the moment what they're prioritizing in the, in the actual design of the algorithm is engagement as the main requirement. So engagement translates into uh, profit, because uh, eyeballs on screens equals ad revenue. And that that is going to always be an incentive for Facebook to um, essentially prioritise outrage content, the kind of content that goes viral. Now, what risk assessment does is, I think, give regulators a way to sort of open that up, to scrutinise it, to see how it's it's happening, um, and then to actually require them to make changes that would prioritize other things. Um, and where they may have to dial down their engagement, that means dialing down their profits if it's um, in the in the interests of public safety. So that's the very much the ambition. I think it's crucial to mention that it won't work unless they have, you know, Article 31 and the data access provisions are really crucial to the risk assessment working. And this is where we've pushed very hard for civil society to be included in the definition of vetted researchers. So the, the DSA foresees that third party researchers can access platform data, can apply to access platform data in order to actually help identify what are those systemic risks um, and what are the harms. And I think that that is really, really crucial because I think left to their own devices, you know, platforms clearly can't do it, but I don't think regulators can do it either. You know, we're talking about a global footprint for for a company like Facebook, you know, in what way could European regulators possibly keep an eye on all of the systemic risks and harms that stem from their operations globally you need you really need the collaboration and input of of third party researchers and i think civil society plays a, a particularly important role as a kind of canary in the in the in the coal mine on this over the last few years leading many of the investigations which have actually revealed the harms in the first place so i think risk assessment has the potential to change the game how's it going to work in practice very difficult to say like any regulatory innovation um, I think it's going to be a little bit of trial and error and, and, and trying to work out how does this get operationalized in practice. Um, uh, and then I think crucially is you know the questions that remain on access to data, what does that vetting process look like, and how do we make sure that it's as robust as possible so that um civil society are part of 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 how the regulation is designed to function?
0: the recommender system is really at the core of how platforms operate now in the european parliament the rapporteur schaldemose has been pushing really hard for having an alternative recommender system that is not based on profiling How do you think this could, again, work in practice? Uh, I know this is uh, really unexplored territory, but what is the alternative to a platform that doesn't use uh, personal data uh, to recommend content?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think a question that a lot of um, groups in civil society have been grappling with. Um, In other other words, we're talking about a non, to some degree, non-personalized version Of of a newsfeed, right? So, what Francis Haugen has referred to turning off engagement based rankings, which, as we talked about, is like the primary mechanism by which outrage goes viral. Um, Not only is it sort of does it lead to that whoever shouts the loudest. Rises to the top in a way, but it also is creating this problem of the filter bubbles, where people are increasingly trapped in those audiences of of one. Um, and so, I think it's a big driver of polarization um, as well as disinformation. I think, you know, we see the erosion really of like almost shared reality um, and and people having common points of reference. So, how to tackle that is very very difficult. And I think civil society, I think, are disappointed where. The law has, whether with the Digital Services Act has landed on this. I think the proposal just to have essentially we're saying Facebook, you need to provide um, a, a non a version that is not based on data profiling, a non personalized version. Essentially, that's the chronological newsfeed. So Facebook already provides a chronological newsfeed, and I've used it just this week. Um, if you turn on your chronological news feed, the next time that you log in, it's back to the outrage news feed. <laughs> so it doesn't seem to work very well. And one of the things that we were really pushing for in the law is to have that actually become a um, the, def- the sort of default setting be the chronological setting. I think that that would have been uh, much more effective, because I think it, no one can expect that users worldwide are going to um, spend their time searching, probably because the platforms will hide the option to change it somewhere in their in their interfaces, searching to, to turn uh, off the personalized version. I think that that would be very naive to assume that they would do that. I also think that there are legitimate questions around, do people want a non-personalized version? Is the chronological version that good? And this is where I think the most interesting uh, ideas on the table were actually for in introducing interoperability for recommender systems. Um, so this is something that the previous, the former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey has talked about is kind of creating a market that could open up innovation in in these systems altogether, right? So at the moment we're offered two versions. We're offered the outrage version, which is prioritizing engagement at all costs and and that horrible cycle that we've talked about. And on the other side, you've got the clunky chronological newsfeed, which people are not used to anymore and that people don't really like. But what if you had um, innovation in a, in a kind of a, 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 an open market where people could plug in an, a third party recommender system to, to Facebook that was really about having a healthy newsfeed and prioritizing the things that people actually want to see. And it would be producing content that they want to see, but that not is not outrage because actually I think a lot of people can agree what you want to see and what is relevant to you is does not always equate to what is the most shouty thing in the room. Um, and so I think if we had if we could create more innovation around that, we would we would have a much healthier um, marketplace in in the kinds of algorithms that are serving people content. Now the DSA hasn't done that, and it hasn't it hasn't really gone even really taken a big step in that direction but I think some of the debates and discussions that have been opened up some of the ideas from groups like Panopticon um, an NGO in Poland who've who've done some really interesting work on this I think we we're seeing the route forward for you know what's beyond the DSA and I think cracking this question of what the future of recommender systems looks like is is absolutely crucial.
0: I tend to agree with you and you know, when we look at the chronological uh, newsfeed, I mean, there is also a risk that we are trapped uh, by just looking at Facebook, right? Because the chronological newsfeed wouldn't work for uh, platforms like YouTube, where you have uh, thousands of videos uploaded every second. Uh, Who would use that on YouTube, for example? So, but let's move on now on uh, dark patterns. Uh, This has been another uh, contentious point uh, between the the European Parliament and the Council. Where do you think things will land?
1: I I don't know right now. And I think this is one of the um, areas that is really remaining still many question marks over it right up until the the 11th hour. Um, I know that Many civil society groups in in the People vs Big Tech Coalition, but also I know many MEPs are very concerned that the Parliament's proposed ban on dark patterns, which is Article 13A, is coming under a lot of pressure from council um, and commission to be sort of stripped back. And I think where we land may end up being something very weak, which would be a, a really big missed opportunity. A lot of us were hoping that the dark patterns provision could really put a stop to the nightmare that european citizens face every day when we log on to the internet or we you know browse browse the internet with the constant bombardment of cookie banners that are designed to trick you into giving consent over and over again but it's not just cookie banners i mean it is a wild west out there in terms of the ways that you know lots of companies and websites Trick people into consenting to data tracking. Um, so, an example from a, a documentary that I saw a couple of weeks ago in France. So, they were looking at this whole murky world of data brokers in the context of the French presidential election, and they had filmed um, a company executive from one of the data brokers on a hidden camera, and he's talking about how how are they actually building this database that they have of you know the thousands and upon thousands of data points per person. And um, he says, oh, well, people come to a website to do a tutorial on uh, how to put up a shelf. And uh, in doing so, they have to click something, they have to consent to something, they have to input their email address. And, you know, it's just, it really, I think, shows the the level of, of trickery that is going, very deliberate manipulation that is going into, um, tr- you know, getting people to sign away their data. And the." The, the guy who sh- or woman who shows up to do a shelf tutorial has absolutely no idea that that data is then sold on. And we saw, you know, two weeks ago, the far right French presidential candidate buying that kind of data um, on a, a list of people who were... It, it, you know, expected to, uh, to be Jewish people. Um, I think it was people who were had ad interest categories of um, in, interested in anti-Semitism and a few other things that would have been proxies potentially for being Jewish. And then targeting those people with, uh, with SMS messages, with anti-Muslim content. So this is a real, you know, there are real world consequences to this trickery. And we were hoping that the DSA was going to really put an end to this practice, not just through Prohibiting dark patterns, but there was a provision in there that was really, really strong that said you you had the right to send an automated signal out from your browser that says do not track. And so rather than having to repeat this process for every single website, you can just send out one, you know, one signal one time. Um, a little bit like the the Apple rollout last year where you people are just given an option once. And when when people are given the option, as we saw with Apple, you know more than 90 percent of people choose to not be tracked so i think that this could have really been a game changer um but it looks like you know the dsa is not going to go as far as as ending this practice and i think it it will be even more important that other regulations such as the e privacy regulation that, that they're picked up and some new life is breathed into them because i think european citizens really you know these protections are long overdue
0: this brings us to the last point the one on targeted advertising now the compromise on the table is to forbid uh advertising targeting minors and advertising using uh sensitive data such as uh political views and religious beliefs. Do you think that uh, these provisions will be real game changers in the way the online advertising industry is operating today?
1: Yeah, so um a really important question and I think to answer it, I have to start with the fact that, you know, with many of the organizations and people versus big tech, you know, we wanted, we really wanted to see um, the regulation go much further. Um, we were very supportive of the 20 or so MEPs in the European Parliament, who who were calling for a full ban on the use of personal data for online advertising, um, the Tracking Free Ads Coalition. Now, to be clear, this, because there's actually a lot of, I think, misinterpretation and also willful. Misinformation about this, uh, because of course industry lobbyists have a very specific uh, spin on it. We're not, you know, this is not to say that uh, companies like Facebook can no longer make their money from advertising. Absolutely not. And it's it's not to say that ads cannot be targeted, but there are ways to target people that are higher level, less invasive, based on the content of what people are looking at, um, rather than who they actually are, um, and and. Everything that they 've ever done in the past, every financial transaction, every website they've visited, um, as well as their declared interests, you know something that just hasn 't really been done is asking people you know what are you interested in receiving ads about um, so the truth is is that I think micro targeting based on inferences made about people based on their data, that practice is just it is on the way out i can 't see how it can, can in the long term continue to be justified uh, in in Europe you know. Amnesty International in 2019 found that it is fundamentally incompatible with human rights. We've just seen it be weaponized over and over and over again um, in ways, you know, the example I just gave from from France, France's election, you know, sensitive data, sensitive inferences made about people. Um, it's the fact that you know it's an interesting uh, case in point that, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all of the major platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter. Turned off their ad, um, uh, their ad market. You know, you could no longer purchase ads if you were in Russia or Ukraine, and that was not just if you were members of the Russian government. If you were official state channels, we're talking about any ad purchasing whatsoever, and that's because they knew that their system is so inherently vulnerable to exploitation that it was going to be weaponized. And so I think. You know, we didn't achieve a full ban in the DSA, um, but I do think it is still encouraging that there are these two prohibitions on some of the most harmful practices, so against some of the most vulnerable people, which are children, which just <laughs> seems madness that we would permit people to track children, profile children, and then use it to sell ad- ad- ads to them, um, and then also sensitive data. Um, unfortunately, I don't think uh, that the sensitive data ban is going to go far enough. Um, the crucial measure we wanted to see. Was that it would prohibit the practice of targeting people based on their sensitive characteristics. Now, that's the example that I just gave from France. You know, it wasn't, it didn't know, it didn't have a list of, of who was actually Jewish because that's very difficult information. You know, to get, um, you, you don't necessarily have access to people's actual health records, but you can nonetheless make extremely, um, you know, sensitive inferences about their health conditions and about their religion without actually processing the sensitive data. And that's the main way that the online advertising um, industry works. It's based on inferences rather than you know, actual data. And so the way that they've worded the ban, unfortunately, I think will only prohibit the, the use of processing of the actual sensitive data as defined under GDPR and not the sensitive characteristics. Um, so I think, do I have hope that it's going to really be adequate is it really going to be meaningful i i don't think it will be but i do nonetheless think it's a really important step in the right direction you know i think it's um we've seen how strong european citizens feelings are on this matter we've seen you know Thousands of people mobilise around this. We've, you know, we've seen in opinion polls that show very decisively, not just from European citizens, but interestingly from business leaders in France and Germany who were polled, um, who who also think that, you know, the wild west and the way that this is is, is bad for their businesses and that the big tech companies should sh- there should be greater regulation on online advertising. The European Commission is making noises about whether there would be, uh, you know, actually future regulation dedicated to online advertising. Um in you know more more comprehensively, and I think that that would be very welcome, given that the DSA doesn't go far enough, but it, it you know this continues to be one of you know we saw this was a big fight during the e-privacy regulation debates, and this continues to be, and I think we you know no one's naive in expecting this will be a struggle, but that I do think the signs are pointing in the right direction, that long term we have to, we have to bring an end to this very, very harmful practice.
0: Tania Carroll is an independent expert coordinating the People vs. Big Tech Coalition. Thank you, Tania.
1: Thanks so much, Luca.
0: That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Digital Brief newsletter for a comprehensive overview on all things digital in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening.